Welcome to State House Soundbites, WITF's Pennsylvania politics podcast. I'm Katie Meyer, State Capitol Bureau Chief for WITF. You can hear my reports on public radio stations across the state. With me today are the caucus's Brad Bumstead. Hello, Brad. And Wallace McKelvey of Penn Live. Guys, thanks for coming down. So we were just talking about this. It was kind of a weird week. Uh, we came off of a week where there was like a bunch of like large legisl- two big legislative things that got done. We passed a pension bill. The governor signed that this Monday. Last week we also had a massive gambling bill that passed the House, uh, which is likely to get changed to the Senate to some degree. Um, but this week it was sort of like they were here, they were active, but it was you know just a lot, a of, lot random of odds stuff. and ends. Odds and yeah. ends. Calm before ends. the storm. The calm. Well, exactly. And we should say so. The budget's due in about two weeks now. On June 30th is technically the deadline, although we will see if they make it. Um, so what, what, what have we seen today? I think the big thing that came out yesterday was the Pennsylvania is being sued by the League of Women Voters and several individual complainants for its uh, latest map, its yeah. latest legislative district, and that's the congressional district. So, Wallace, you covered that, right? Yeah, the, the map that came out in 2011, which at the time was subject to a lot of legal scrutiny and public outrage because of some of the, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll call them creatively... Uh, designed congressional districts, one of them being the uh, uh, the famous one in southeastern Pennsylvania that has been described as uh, goofy kicking Donald Duck. It's a work of art. If you haven't looked <laughs> it up, look it up. Seventh congressional. And if you're if you're not familiar with the redistricting issue and with gerrymandering, this is something that's done every ten years because of the census. Uh, because you need to have uniform districts that have roughly the same amount of people in them. Um, ideally, they're also contiguous, and they combine like-minded communities. But in practice, uh, especially with advances in technology, you're able more often to pick the kind of voters that you want in a district. We see this in places like Wisconsin and North, North Carolina. And Pennsylvania is one of the states that has come in for a lot of scrutiny because of its maps. We're one of the most gerrymandered states in the country, as general consensus says. So, yeah, um, but then this week, and we've seen various pushes from various groups to fix Pennsylvania's gerrymandering problem. One of the prominent ones, and they've been active lately, is Fair Districts PA. They are pushing for a constitutional amendment, but this is not that. This is a lawsuit. Um, You know, what are the merits of a lawsuit? Really, I think the big thing is it can get done quicker if they are successful, right? And quicker is a relative term. I right. mean, a lawsuit you know, can wind up being appealed to federal courts and undoubtedly you know, go up through the federal court system. It can take years. Right. And that's where redistricting challenges are usually decided. And, and uh, they have usually, no matter how bad it is or how distasteful we find some of these districts, politics, you know, is allowed in all of this. And as long as they're not, you know, deliberately, you know, uh, discriminating against people of certain races or, or acting fraudulently, they can do about whatever they want. So the problem is that they get dug in even deeper, the party in control, and then they can gerrymander again the next time around. It becomes hard to have any kind of equity in politics. Right. Not saying it's right, but it's the way it works. And one of the, the marquee statistics that they, they brought up in this lawsuit is that in the 2012 congressional elections, 49% of voters statewide were Democrats. But Republicans got 13 of the 18 congressional districts, which there are some, um, there are some kind of 
reasons for that beyond gerrymandering. You know, one of the biggest ones being that Democrats tend to be, they, they coalesce in the cities. They're so packed into smaller exactly. areas. It's that, it's that Carvel quote from the 90s that, you know, Pennsylvania is uh, Philadelphia. And Pittsburgh with uh, Kentucky in between. Right. Alabama in between. <laughs> Alabama. Yes. Um, I'm conflating the Pennsylvania <laughs> with the Carvel quote. <laughs> I don't yeah. think he would sharply disagree with you. But. Yeah, same, same principle. But, yeah, so um, there are some definite, like, I think, geographic factors and demographic factors in Pennsylvania that contribute to this. But a lot of people do say gerrymandering is a major part of this. So what might we see from this lawsuit? I mean, it's as Brad said, it could take a while. Well, for one, going through the state system, uh, it will definitely end up in the state Supreme Court. Right. And if it gets there, there is a Democratic majority on that court thanks to the 2015 election, which makes it you know, somewhat more likely that they'll be successful on the state level. But of course, as Brad says, most of the time these issues are not resolved in the, at the state level. They get kicked up to the federal level. Right, right. They're U.S. House districts. Yeah. Well, yeah. that happened in both, I think, Maryland and Wisconsin, right? Both of those yeah, went to. And Wisconsin right now is about to be considered by the U.S. Supreme Court, right. which could set a precedent for other challenges across the nation. Yeah. And I think it's worth mentioning, too, we're talking about, a, I guess, a Republican favoring gerrymander is what yes. this is considered. Yeah. But this happens on both sides. The Maryland case is Democrats who kind of fix the district. It, it does, but I think the increased interest right now in, in gerrymandering and redistricting, not that it hasn't long been an issue, but has to do with what do you want to call the resistance to Donald Trump. And I think a lot of people who, who are appalled at what happened in the last presidential election see Trump think that, correctly, that the only way to try to deal with this is to have more Democrats, let's say, in Congress who could oppose him and maybe... Um, uh, overturn the Republican majorities there. And they're right, but it's it's almost too late to do that for the next round of redistricting. Right. And that, I wanted to bring that up, too, because I think it is interesting how this breaks down in a partisan way. Because when you're hearing people present this lawsuit, it does sound, and I think, you know, in some sort of an academic way, it, it it's kind of a nonpartisan thing, right? You try to make take party out of district drawing to the you know the greatest degree that you can, so that it's as fair as possible. Let a computer do it. You know, let politicians not be the ones who draw it. However, there's always going to be partisan connotations here, and we're seeing that. And I think the early responses to this and case. the way the system works in Pennsylvania currently, where you have uh, you know you have a vote of the legislature that kicks it up to the governor's office, and depending on who's in power, that can really decide how these districts are drawn under that system. Well, isn't it? also, I mean, it almost always goes to the Supreme Court in yeah. Pennsylvania. Yes. And so that it really matters who controls the court. Back in 2011, it was the Republicans. Now it's the Democrats. Yeah. So that could really change how this pans out. But to overturn an existing plan at this point would be, you know, very, very difficult right. and, and create havoc in, in districts. And, you know what I mean? It would be, right. And so to get back who, who's to my this, congressman? I mean, they don't know now, but, you know, yeah. what's it going to be then? Exactly. And to get back to what I was talking about, the partisan thing, I mean, I was hearing from Republicans right after the um, lawsuit was filed. Um, the spokesman for the House Republicans was saying, as you said, Brad, you know, why time? Why now? Why are they doing this now? It's part of the Trump resistance. This is sort of a I, you know, he's interpreting it as a political thing. Well, but, but that's not necessarily, a, you know, a bad thing. I mean, that's the, regardless of whether you're for or against well, Trump, sure. and this many is a smart way to, this is the only real thing, theoretically, that you can do that would change how, how Congress operates. Sure. And that's, 
where you go. That, that's what you try to do, and it makes sense. But whether it's successful is a whole other story. And it bears mentioning that there's a parallel track here, and that's actually changing the way that the districts are drawn at the state level. Um, you know, there's bills in the legislature currently that would create an independent commission that would, you know, is intended at least. It's not clear that it necessarily will in practice but would take it more out of the hands of the party leaders right. and put it and, into this independent And, and they're going to be quick to give that up, the party leaders. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and you, know, you, need a, you need a change to the Constitution in order to do that. Or, and or, that or you need their constituents uh, beating their door down saying, this is our top priority. I and mean, you have had some of that happening You have recently. had some. But, um, but, yeah, I mean, that – it actually is – I'm just going to go on the tangent. The, um, Please do. Yeah, the amendment tangent for a minute because I did think this was so interesting, and I think we talked about this in a previous podcast, but uh, we have, you know, in the House and Senate, bipartisan bills that have been introduced. They haven't gone anywhere yet, but they have been introduced to introduce this amendment, uh, this Independent Citizens Commission. And I was talking to the Republican sponsor on one of the bills, Mario Scavello, and he seemed sort of like he's sponsoring this bill, and he didn't even seem sold on it. Um, and he didn't what? Didn't really seem too sold oh, on it. Right. You know, he was saying, like, oh, yeah, it'd be a great thing, but, you know, maybe we'll be fine anyway. So, I mean, you know, when you yeah, have well, that... Yeah, you face the reality, you know, in order to have a constitutional amendment, you know, it has to pass the two legislature in two consecutive sessions. <laughs> and then, then it gets to a referendum. And we don't have referendums very often here yeah. in Pennsylvania, so that's right. a rare it's thing so, it's anyway. It's so difficult in the state to, to try to change anything like that, and, and it's very difficult to change anything. And, you know, we're just not like other states that have initiative and referendum and say, oh, what are we going to put on the right. ballot this year? And we could hook one up right here. California's you know? got like two million things right. in there. Right. Ideally, if, if you know, part of me thinks if these advocacy groups had really wanted to get this done, they arguably should have started work on this a year or two ago, at least on the, the legislative end of it. Right. And because think- we're running up against the deadline now. But that Absolutely. was pre-Trump. Well, and that's the thing, and I think you're right on with that, Brad, that, you know, they need some sort of an impetus to care about this sometimes remote-seeming thing. Maybe they did care about it before, but to actually try to do something about it is a different story. You you need bodies in order to make a real difference. On on the lawsuit front, they argue that they needed time to actually see the results of the 2011 maps. They did say that. Good good argument. uh, It is definitely a fair argument. Now that they have, what, three elections since the maps have been drawn? Yeah, Yeah, but, but that's all the more reason... That, that lawyers on the other side can argue, look what harm this would do you right. know, to existing districts. And Yeah, I have one more question on this for you guys, because sure. this is something that I've been sort of just thinking about since this happened, like it happened yesterday. But, um, you know, the, the entire state of Pennsylvania is being sued. It's not just the Republican Party. So you look on this lawsuit, you've got a list of defendants. It's Governor Tom Wolf. It's Mike Stack is on there. The, you know, the, oh yeah, he's up there. Um, the leaders in uh, the you know, House and Senate are all on there, and so just like how have you guys seen this before, where the state gets sued? Like how do they? Who's going to contest this? Who's going to? Well, the, the, the attorney general is is charged with representing the state sure. in court. That's that's the attorney general's job. As far as all these other named officials, it happens in so many different lawsuits, and as it progresses just a little bit, certain ones get knocked out, and then some others. You know, and it comes down to just a couple, maybe core people who were involved in the decision-making, okay. yeah. you know, and, so and yeah. you, you see that at every level, even at the municipal level, very often, like, the current mayor will be on a lawsuit yes. when the current mayor was not in charge of any decision-making. Right. But I guess, I mean, I'm just thinking, because there is this, like, partisan divide, and Governor Wolf, when he sent out his statement, he's like, well, I'm, you know, 
in favor I, of fairness I support and fairness and transparency, yeah. Yeah, but thanks, I don't have Governor. an opinion on this he lawsuit. He hasn't read it yet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, like, so if maybe, like, if, say, Wolf is in favor of, like, you know, un-gerrymandering and yeah, then yeah. the Republicans aren't. Like, Which he probably is. Well, I don't know. We'll see. But, like, but I, I mean, mean, he's not. he doesn't have to be party to that lawsuit to have okay. an opinion on it. And it is, look, there is some validity to saying if you're a governor of a state, um, I support these concepts, but not comment specifically about a suit. Sure. Or you'll be in the witness stand. Right. No one wants that. Well, maybe you would want that if you're an advocate, though, huh? Oh, uh, maybe. We'll see. Um, so this is, again, early stages. This was just filed yesterday officially. Uh, we've only known about it for a few days more than that. Um, but we'll keep you updated if anything happens. Now I wanted to talk about, we're going to go off the beaten path a little bit with stuff that happened this week. You guys uh, both actually wanted to talk about right to know laws. Uh, I guess, Wallace, you brought this up as a topic, and I think it's a fascinating topic. As journalists, we all take advantage of these laws to varying degrees of success. So what's on your mind? Well, I think this is something where it's important for the ordinary citizen to know how the sausage is made. Realistically, the way the right-to-know laws are set up in this state, and in actually in most states, and at the federal level when it comes to something called FOIA, oh, yeah. it's... Uh, Usually, as I don't know about you, but uh, when I need a record quickly, the best way to get it is to get it from someone in the agency who's willing to just hand it to you. Mm -hmm. If you file a request, more often than not, you get an automatic, you know, first of all, they wait in Pennsylvania... Uh, the agency has five days to respond. They'll wait the full five days. And then what they do is they typically invoke something called the 30-day extension, which basically says we don't expect to be able to fill this in the five days. We need 30 more days to fill it. So right off the bat, as someone... for legal review. Yes, for legal review. So right off the bat, you know, as journalists, we typically see a 35-day window where we're not going to get anything. Right. And then on top of that, if the agency decides to deny the requests, and the way the law is written and the way court decisions have been handed down, uh, you know, th- this this body of case law and actual written law is so vague that many of the excuses that agencies give you for denying a request may be rather frivolous. You know, it, it can come down to, oh, it's a personnel matter. Or, That's oh, a it was a deliberative uh, document, something that, that was pre-decisional. Then the one I hate the most, absolutely hate the most, is the record does not exist. Yes. So you've asked, you know, very specifically for certain things, but it may not be exactly in that form. You might be off a little bit. They'll say the record doesn't exist. Right. Well, come on. You know, and, and I agree with you, Wallace, that, that I, even before this portion of this law was passed, we always used to do pretty well just asking for things, you know, rather than making a written request. But the problem is you have no protection when you don't uh, file one. So it just happened to me with, with um, um, and I'll say, with, with uh, Lieutenant Governor Stack's office for something that I wanted out of there that they said, oh, we'll get this for you. It's not a problem. Okay, great. So I checked back every week and I wasn't getting it. So I got up to uh, about the 30, 35-day mark. And finally said, uh, uh, okay, 
great, you're not going to give me this, I'm just going to write a story about it. you said you would, now you didn't, and, and all that. So then they gave it to me. But <laughs> and, and, uh, but the point is, that, you know, yeah. it's, it was about the same amount of time if I had filed the right-to-know law request. Right. So the right-to-know no law gives you some protection. It, it gives you a clock, basically, and it yes. says if, if the agency doesn't meet this clock, then you can appeal. And you can, we have a body that takes these appeals, and sometimes they, you know, sometimes they rule in the in favor of the uh, journalist or the ordinary citizen who files a right to know request, and sometimes they don't. For law enforcement agencies, they bypass that body. So if you have a right to know request with the AG's office, you have to go through their own appeal section, and I. You have to wonder when someone has their own appeals section, how often do they actually rule in favor of the person seeking the documents? Right, they don't have a vested interest in no. helping out for their boss. Um, but yeah, it's 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 really nasty. You know what's what's happened in the state with the right to know law because when this latest law was passed. The, the big change was supposed to be that the presumption is in favor of the taxpayer, the, the person asking for the record. Sure. I just don't see that. I, I just don't see that they're saying, oh, well, you know, we're going to err on the side of, of giving you these documents. Right. It, it, well, I it's, mean... it's incredibly cynical, and that's I got my I got my Irish up recently. I won't. <laughs> uh, I will not call the agency out by name yet, but. <laughs> Whenever you give an automatic 30-day extension to a right-to-know request, that immediately raises a question. Right. Sure. Uh, are you, in fact, you know, is, is there good reason to not have the documents ready? Or are you just trying to run out the clock in hopes that if you keep delaying and you keep delaying and you keep delaying, either the reporter is just going to forget about it or the citizen, because you have to remember... Members of the public also are protected under right to know law, but in practice, because of the way this system is set up, it's very difficult for the ordinary citizen to get records because they don't have the weight of a legal department. Not that most newspapers and other media organizations don't have a legal department either, but we, at least we have some wherewithal to make appeals. Yeah. I don't know about you guys, but like, how often do you get that automatic 30-day extension? Almost always. Yeah. I mean, I think most departments do it as a matter of course. So I, I, mean, I think that is the question here, right? How do you fix a system where it's sort of ingrained that they have these tools at their disposal and they're going to use them and there's really nothing preventing them from using right. them. Right, it would be very hard to pass another law that, that changes that, but I just think you, you have to reduce that window. They're going to take it automatically, okay, then make it 10 to 15 days or something like that. Just cut it in half, yeah. you know. But sometimes there are success stories, and I'll just tell you about one briefly. Yeah. Uh, we were trying to get a contract from the state house um, about their copying machines, and uh, it's had to do I with. I sometimes the, wonder what you guys are working on over there. Right, right. <laughs> well, but, but because there was this big fuss about um, them hiring an outside consultant and paying them over a million dollars to come in and do this study of their copying machines, and they had, uh, through an existing contract with Xerox, uh, enough copying machines for to have two for every member of the house. Okay. <laughs> Four hundred. We have the largest working right. full-time house in the now, state. Now, granted, the country, it didn't always work out that way, but you has one in every district office, and here you might have had one that they're sharing among certain people. But no, the point is, it. when we asked for uh, the contract, we got it, and it said in there that there was an audit being done. Okay, by the person they paid, the consultant they paid. Well, we like a copy of the audit. The same day, not five days later, the same day, I got. A, a response back from the clerk of the house denying the request 
um, and saying that, that you can't have this because there, there's uh, information in here that the, the consultant felt would be, uh, um, you know, v- violate his uh, uh, basic rights as, as a, uh, proprietary information, that, that, that it would violate that. Well, government agencies routinely can't just say you can't have this. They shouldn't agree to something that's proprietary because it's a public record and it has to do with spending. Uh, fortunately, because I sit next to... Um, and my, my colleague, who's an attorney, Paula Knudsen, used to handle these kind of things with the Pennsylvania Newspaper Association. She filed an ironclad appeal, and within a couple days, they gave us the contract. And we didn't even have to go through a right-to-know law right. process because they had no right to deny us for a financial record. And right. that's really and what that's this was. And that's the thing. I mean, if everybody had a Paula Knudsen, everyone would be much more successful with right-to-know. Right. But... Uh, but, but you know, you can learn a lot from that. Absolutely. And you know, it's just read the law. It's not that complicated. And, you know, financial records of the legislature have to be provided. Not much else. Yeah. They don't have to do their emails. That's that's another inconsistency here. You can get emails from the administration most of the time, but you can't get them from the legislature. Right. And now, I want to ask you guys, because I, you know, I'm thinking about this. You know, we know Pennsylvania's law has some issues. Um, I've seen similar issues in New York. We know on the federal level it's difficult to get information. I mean, do you know of anywhere or any way of making these, you know, systems a little bit better where, you know, the government doesn't want to share information, but they have to. They're beholden to in some way. Like, how do you, how do you improve something like this? I mean, I think it's just an overall culture of openness that needs to exist. I was fortunate right. to have worked in Florida for three years where things are very open. Okay. Um, open meetings, you know, open records. And I used to go get records... Uh, you know, that, that, you know, I'd think, oh, my gosh, do I have to file something or do something to get this? No, you can okay. have them. You can look so at them. So Florida has a, more, a culture of openness. Yeah, I know you worked in New Jersey. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I've heard about Florida being a model for, you know, surprisingly enough, given how the lack of transparency in some areas, Florida, apparently, from what I've heard and from you now, they have a very solid open records law. New Jersey? Not at all. Not <laughs> at think so. all. I mean, the way that there's, they, they have a similar, uh, they have an appeals body, but the appeals body is largely appointed by the governor. So if the governor's office doesn't want you to get something, you're not going to get it. Right. And they also operate very slowly. It's, <sighs> That's I, New Jersey is not the model for Pennsylvania to, to go. All right, to so take. That, write that down. Don't look at New Jersey as a model. <laughs> One example of that in Florida, and it just yeah. sticks in my mind because I'll, I'll never forget this. I had heard that there was a legislator who had a certain bill that affected a certain industry who was had his, as his roommate a lobbyist who represented that industry. So I went over, you know, I checked around where these things filed, and indeed they had to file some kind of disclosure statement, and he had a statement filed that he co-owned a house with this lobbyist, and I just went and wrote a story about it. You know, it was that easy. I didn't wait five days, I didn't wait 30 days, I just got a copy of it, you know, and and the people down there expect that's what you should be able to do. And I I think it's important to discuss, you know, solutions in addition to bringing up problems, and I think one solution that I wish more agencies would adopt. Take the most frequently requested documents and Mm -hmm. put them online. 
Mm-hmm. That way, I mean, and, and these are tend to be fairly innocuous records anyway, but it's the kind of stuff that... A lot of it's like schedules salaries and, and salaries. Yeah, exactly. Which you can get if you hunt on Penwatch anyway, a, a yeah. site that's... Just, but you should be able to look at any agency and say, here's all their salaries. Right. You know? So I guess to wrap up this conversation, um, we hear lawmakers, uh, politicians generally talk a lot about transparency and openness. And you hear, you know, whenever somebody's running for anything, you hear from our governor all the time, you know, I'm uh, committed to transparency and openness. And you have to look at, for instance, the right to know law and how easy it is to get information that your government doesn't necessarily want to give you. It's not maybe in their best interest to give you. If it's very, very difficult to get that information, maybe it's not very transparent. Credit where credit is due. Right. You know, gov- the governor's office has been putting up more documents yeah, nothing online. against Governor Tom Wolf's administration. Uh, definitely a lot more than Corbett did. Yeah, and they've, his term. I think what M- they've done too. More than any too, recent governor, I think. Well, yeah. one of the good things the Wolf administration has done, credit where credit is due, is make databases that the state is supposed to have online easier to search. Some of the databases that you know Pennsylvania uses have been horrendous. For yeah, except years for and one, years. one big one, campaign <laughs> finance. Right, that one's still bad. Yeah, they need yeah. to work on it. Yeah, but he has like a centralized database for various things now. There's a couple of them, but say there's it's baby steps. Um, the campaign finance one. If you haven't, for any, for just for kicks, look up the Pennsylvania campaign finance website and try to find something specific. <laughs> yeah, I mean you're far better to go to followthemoney.org and right. look at what legislators yeah. have collected. Over the years, because you can't you can't quickly do the kind of searches on there, right? Um, so anyway, yeah, you hear that, Governor Wolf? Work on the yeah. We're, 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 we're crediting <laughs> we, you, Governor Wolf. We beseech Wolf. you. <laughs> Someone else has really done a turnaround on this. Is the House of Representatives? Yeah. They used to be one of the worst, the absolute worst, along with the Senate. They would they would just you know even before the right to know law was passed, just drag things out two months and not give you records and all of that. And they've been very timely and very responsive and very good about it. Right. All right. Next topic, real quick. You've been on the stack beat, Brad. Uh, what's new so in Mike Stackland, Lieutenant Governor? Um, there's not a lot new on it. Uh, yeah. The, the, the uh, question, overriding question at this point is is when and in what form will the Inspector General uh, release a report, um, at least to the governor, uh, on Stack's behavior. Stack and his wife, Tanya, uh, were uh, accused of um, uh, alleged abuse of their state police detail and staffers who worked at the mansion. Um, the, the governor, um, in, in a move that was clearly seen as, as a, you know, a slap at Stack, just took his security detail away and, and uh, reduced the number of mansion employees significantly and, and had them supervised. Right. Um, so uh, we're just waiting to see what happens with that. And, and the subsequent thing that happened was that, that um, Stack's office stated that Tanya Stack uh, was in residential treatment for mental health issues. Right. And it becomes a more difficult issue to... Uh, write about and handle then at that point will she be named won't she be named well you know how sure. i do want to ask you though this has said some i say so far minor legislative implications there's a bill that was introduced this week to you know change how the lieutenant governor is elected because right now our law is that the lieutenant governor and the governor run separately in the primaries yes whoever wins the lieutenant governor primary for each party becomes the running mate right and that essentially gives you, you know, what we have now which is sort of odd couples like governor wolf and mike stack shotgun and marriage shotgun marriages <laughs> and as you said it's pretty clear that uh you know wolf and stack are not the closest right um you know, I don't think they would have chosen each other. 
Well, it's like they're very different people. And we've seen this before. Governor Rendell and his lieutenant governor. I wasn't here, but I hear they did not get along super well. It wasn't so much he didn't get along. He did, would prefer to have had someone else as his lieutenant governor. Yes. But he couldn't make a move to, to get rid of uh, Catherine Baker Knoll because she had a lot of popularity with senior citizens and, and uh, uh, different groups across the state, particularly western Pennsylvania. So Right. So it's not always that there's like any animosity. Not that no. I'm saying there's animosity between Stack and Wolf necessarily. But <laughs> Brad rolls his eyes. We can't prove it. But uh, maybe you were working on proving it. No, I can't prove it. But anyway. Um, Speaking of, I'm, I'm waiting for a right to know response from them as well. <laughs> <laughs> what is it, Governor Wolf? Do you like my stack? No, no, no. From the Lieutenant Governor's office. Interesting. Well, yeah. Wallace, if you get anything on that, let us know. <laughs> um, all right. So that's Wolf and Stack. So we've got that legislation happening. Do you think that'll be, I mean, that's another thing that needs a constitutional amendment. It does need a constitutional amendment. And it, it, it begs an even broader question, and that is, and the senators didn't want to go there, the ones who sponsored this, do we need a Lieutenant Governor? Right. Because you know, it really Some is. Some states don't have one. Right, and it's for the line of succession. That's what it's for primarily. And we've had, the, 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 in two instances, uh, the Senate President Pro Tem, um, Joe Scarnati, former um, uh, uh, Pro Tem Bob Jubileer, both ascend to become uh, second in command uh, lieutenant governor. So it right. um, uh, wasn't the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that is interesting, too, because that opens us up as well to having a governor from one party and a second in command from another. If it's right. Switched. Now, long term, how would that be? I don't know. Both yeah. of those people, I think, respected and didn't treat it in a partisan manner just because they're there as a Republican, pick a fight every day with the governor. Hell, sure. they could do that anyway from the Senate. <laughs> they can and do. Right. All right. So interesting implications there. But, again, this is not something that is going to happen quickly. Again, constitutional amendment, two consecutive sessions, plus a ballot measure. So it's a big deal. Um, last thing I want to get to today, you guys, uh, two weeks to the budget. Um, we've got it. We've got a <laughs> got traveling a guitarist. guitarist. <laughs> you never know. This is a coffee shop, so hey. Um, all right. I was wondering if that was a live guitarist. I couldn't tell. It was. Um, all right. So last thing I want to get to: two weeks to the budget. This has been a quiet week as far as that has gone, but there have been some closed door meetings. Anything that kind of eked out that you guys thought was interesting going forward? I don't think that they have a real focus on on any one thing, but I think. You know, starting next week, the, the doors open wide, not not to us to be in the room, <laughs> but to all, all sorts of proposals right. you know, to look at what they can do to resolve this. Because you're looking at a $3 billion structural deficit, which I guess is about either $1.5 or $1.7 billion. Take yeah. your pick for yeah. a and, and year. So far, they've been you know they've been tackling big issues, but it's been more it, it's been feeling like they're just kind of chipping away, like the pension stuff. Right. Well, the, the pension the thing was like, okay, expansion. we got pension out of the way in the beginning. That's what yeah. they did. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think the fact remains, and we have talked about this big gambling bill, but that's not going to fill any amount yeah, of the you know, The most rosy kind of projections have the, the gambling bill um, maybe bringing in $200 million, 250 $200, 300000000 Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, and it's, it's hard to take those, even those projections seriously because so many of the projections, especially when it comes to the gaming stuff, they end up falling well short when you get to the reality. And that's part of the reason why even our current budget is so 
is so fraught because the projections on liquor and gaming. Well, let's not give them too much credit here. They were going to do a gaming expansion and then didn't pass it. So yeah. <laughs> it's not that the projections were too short. Well, they just I'm didn't. talking specifically about the liquor licenses, yeah. 24-7 service to casinos. Right, right. They had large projections on that one, and yeah, a lot none of, of it materialized. Yeah. It's, they got some very idealistic projections sometimes that yes. don't pan out. Um, but so I guess to kind of re- recap the realities of what we're facing in budget negotiations right now, approximately $3 billion structural deficit. Some estimates have it edging up towards four. Um, you know, so we've got that. We've got a Republican majority that does not want to raise taxes and have been very adamant about that. Governor Wolf has said, okay, we won't do broad-based taxes. He would like a severance tax on natural gas. Which doesn't gas. bring a lot of money in right now because gas prices are low. Exactly. And it's also it, it's very, very tied to gas prices. Yeah. So that's questionable. And also the also Republicans don't want it. Also a heavy lift because of how many <laughs> lobbying interests are involved. Yeah, but. the Republicans are very strongly <laughs> against that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, where's the new revenue? Not a whole lot to be had under these conditions. Um, Republicans are looking for a lot of cuts. But even they are saying we need about... $800 million in new revenue from somewhere. So scraping that together is going to be tough. And right now it's looking like they're going towards the so-called syntaxes. And that $800 million is based on the numbers they're using for the ones you've already debunked. Right. Um, so I think you need over a billion at least. They would exactly. admit privately. Right. So um, as we said, the deadline is June 30th. Haven't heard too much about where this money is coming from or what's being cut. But we will see soon. And as far as the structural deficit, right. we've gone on with one for how many years now? I mean, it's, it's not like that has to be resolved. They do have to balance the general fund budget by by, by law by uh, July the 1st. But many years, that hasn't happened either. Right. And I, I think it's worth noting we just had um, a report. We talked about this in last week's podcast, but a report from the Auditor General and Treasurer saying that, you know, the general fund is low enough that they may have to take out an outside loan, um, some, I mean, as soon as maybe next month, if nothing is done to bring in new revenue or lower expenses. So that's something. And Auditor General uh, Eugene Pasquale also did say, like, at this point, it's pretty clear that last year's budget was not balanced. When you end up with a billion dollar uh, shortfall, that's... It's, a, it's that thing. Every year they get out the duct tape and the spit and they just co- you know, cobble up something. Get it together. Yeah. Um, all right. So that's, uh, I think, a good sad note to end on. Um <laughs> We will be back next week to update you further. There may be some more budget news coming out next week if anything is said. We'd hope so. We hope so. That'd be nice. (laughs) (laughs) Any lawmakers who might be listening, guys. Uh, Yeah, this would be a great time to jump cut to October. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hope not. I'd like to go on vacation in July if you could. Um, All right. So we'll see what happens. Again, guys, thanks for coming down today. Wallace McKelvey with Penn Live, Brad Bumstead with the caucus. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you.